The art world, and particularly the European art world, can be a little bit pretentious. And I think there's this kind of classical gaze. If you know your art history or you know your art market history, you know this notion of standing in front of the painting and solemnly looking at it is actually the way that the bourgeoisie would distinguish itself both from the dissolute nobles and from the uneducated peasants. But this idea that you're not supposed to get excited about art, which is ridiculous, also leads us to think that art couldn't somehow be important in a place where you could also have fun in the morning and at night. Hi, I'm Tim Schneider, and this is The Art Angle, a podcast from Artnet News where the art world meets the real world, bringing each week's biggest story down to earth. For Art Basel, the most well-known art fair in the world, the fourth quarter of 2022 marked the end of one era and the beginning of another. In early November, leadership of the company transitioned to Noah Horowitz, who returned after a roughly year-long stint at Sotheby's to become the first-ever CEO of the same fair brand where he served as director of the Americas from 2015 to 2021. But clearing Horowitz's path to the chief executive's office was the one and only Mark Spiegler. Spiegler shocked the art world in October 2022 by announcing that he would end his decade-long campaign as Art Basel's global director at the end of that year, though he will stay on as an advisor through June of this one. During his time at the helm, Spiegler oversaw a transformation of the company across multiple dimensions, including doubling the annual number of Art Basel fairs, dramatically expanding the company's digital presence, quintupling the size of its staff, responding to a global pandemic, and much, much more. It's not an exaggeration to say that if you look closely at these shifts, they mirror back some of the most important ways that the art business as a whole has morphed during the 21st century. That's why I was so interested in sitting down with Mark in mid-January for the first extended interview he has given in his post-Basel professional life. Mark Spiegler, thanks for joining us on The Art Angle. Tim, it's great to be here. I've been a big fan of yours for many, many years, as you know. So I'm happy to finally be on the podcast. Well, that's kind of you to say. And we've come a long way, I think, both of us from our first meeting in LA. Do you remember what year that was? So I'm going to hazard a guess that it was when Noah Horowitz started with Art Basel in 2015. I think it was our first trip to LA together. And we had both been big fans of your blog, The Gray Market. And I think I reached out to you and said, Noah and I would love to meet you. And so we did a breakfast meeting at the Sunset Towers, my favorite hotel in Los Angeles. And to be quite honest, you were in a state of somewhat shock most of the time because you were trying to figure out what the hell we were doing convoking you to a meeting. And eventually you realized it was just that we thought you're a really smart guy and we want to talk about the art market with you. But it took a while for you to get that. I don't know. How did it feel from the other side of the table? Well, it was interesting because at that point in time, I was still very much operating in a zone where I was writing pretty consistently. I was just doing my own thing, though. I wasn't really writing much for 
publications of any kind. And that's a weird place to be because you're always just sort of feeling like you're shouting into the void potentially. And when I talk about the development of my career as a journalist, the thing that I always say is that every time I was getting to a point where I was like, I don't really know if this is hitting, like maybe I should start looking at doing something else. I would get some kind of outside encouragement from somebody in the art business who I knew knew what they were talking about. And it would sort of reinforce my belief that maybe I was onto something. And so when you and Noah reached out to me or when you reached out to me and I had that meeting with you, it was one of those points. I was just like, okay, well, this, this is something, but I don't really know what this is. So yeah, I was a little disoriented, but I was honored to do it. And yeah, very happy we were able to have that meeting. Good. And now the conversation continues. And now the conversation continues in a much more professional format, for better or for worse. So uh, let's start here. Right now, we're having this conversation. It's January 18th of 2023. To my knowledge, this is the first time since, I think, 2007, when you've woken up on New Year's Day without the title of either co-director or global director of Art Basel. How has your life been different so far? Like, are you still dealing with Art Basel business every day in this kind of strategic advisory role that you have for the next, I think, five months and change? Or are you just kind of like mostly out here living your best life as Mark Spiegler, private citizen? I think the answer to that question is yes. (laughs) (laughs) Both are true to some extent. I'm certainly not doing Art Basel business every day. I'm in touch with the team when issues arise. Sometimes they ask my advice. Of course, the group of people who are running Art Basel are very experienced, and they often work with me for such a long time that they pretty much know what I would tell them without even asking me. That being said, obviously, I'm sure there are issues that will arise that I'll get more mixed into. You know, at the same time, the beginning of the year was always kind of weird. You know, the first week of the year, I was with my kids. You know, they're still on vacation, so we went to Milan. And then last week, I was at DLD, the Digital Life Design Conference in Munich, and I was talking about primarily Miami Beach and the way in which cultural development positions a city globally. And so I was talking a lot about Art Basel while explaining to people that I was no longer responsible for it. It's really only this week that it's sinking in that I actually don't need to deliver four fairs this year. And I have to say... The great thing about working in that capacity for Art Basel was that I got to go all over the world and meet incredible people and, you know, really jet right into the middle of the cultural epicenters of wherever they were that week. But the tough thing was that when you wake up on the 1st of January in that role, your travel is pretty predestined. You know you're going to this fair and that fair and this biennial, and in a sense, Half your year is spoken for, and the world is a big place, and I'm looking forward to being able to stay longer in some of the places that I came to discover during my travels you know, at Art Basel, and also to go to places I've never been and, and to engage with the art world in a different kind of way. Well, that definitely seems like an improvement, and if not an improvement, then definitely a change of pace. So It wasn't bad before, um, so it's not an improvement per se, but it's nice to live in a different way also. Yeah, yeah, I understand that. Speaking of living in a different way, I want to go back in time to the start of your journey with Art Basel, which 
began in 2007. And up to that point, you had been a journalist who was writing primarily, but not exclusively, about the art world. I can understand coming to the decision of it's time to leave journalism behind for a role on the business side of contemporary art. But at that time, why did you think that art fairs were the right sector to pivot into? So to be super clear, I wasn't looking to the exits of journalism, which is, I think, a much more beleaguered profession now than it was then. And it was already kind of beleaguered then. I had come to understand a lot about what Art Basel was and what it was becoming and what it meant to run Art Basel because I was quite friendly with Sam Keller, who was, of course, the director of Art Basel from 2000 to 2007 and had worked there for about half a dozen years beforehand. So I had a pretty good front row seat on what it meant to run Art Basel and, and where it was bringing him and what he was doing. And when he announced that he was leaving, I heard about it because he called me. And I was actually on a surfing vacation in Lombok, which is the island east of Bali in Indonesia. He called me and he told me, and I went back to bed and I was like, wow, that's interesting that he's going to the Fondation Baylor. And it really sucks for me because I'm not going to have the same access to Art Basel that I did before. Little did I know how things would turn out. And it, the only way that I got into the process was because I was asked. You could not apply for this job. There was a search committee uh, comprised of various stakeholders in the art world. And they threw my name into the hat. And I think I was very much a dark horse candidate. And, you know, speaking quite frankly, I was a freelance journalist. So it wasn't like I was giving up a tenured professorship or the directorship of some museum or something. In a sense, I had nothing to lose. And it seemed like a really interesting job. So I've always been a kind of structural thinker. My parents are both social scientists. I studied political science. I teach now at Bocconi in Milan about cultural marketing. So I'm kind of a systems thinker. And in a sense, I think the impact that it had on the structure of the art world was what was attractive to me much more so than the champagne or the traveling or whatever. You know, for me, it was really a chance to have an impact in a world that I had come to hold quite dear. Now, you had covered art fairs as a journalist before you became an art fair professional, and you had actually covered Art Basel fairs in particular. I believe that if people go to your website where you still have a lot of your journalism there. I believe that there is a piece that is about your visit to Art Basel, Miami Beach. Before we get into Miami itself, which is a whole other aspect of the conversation, I'm just curious, when you kind of went through the looking glass and became an art fair professional, what was the biggest shift that happened in the way that you looked at art fairs, since you had seen them from like a consumer standpoint and a journalistic standpoint, like what happened when you went to the other side and said, oh, actually, maybe this works a little differently than I thought it did. In politics, they say that where you stand depends on where you sit, meaning your party orientation or whatever, or what district you come from. And I think it's similar with art fairs. I think depending on what your role is within the art world, you see it quite differently. As a journalist, I always saw art fairs as a place to find stories, both stories of the fair themselves, but also future stories, interesting galleries were developing, new artists were coming onto the scene, new collectors who might be arising, et cetera. 
I think when you're an art fair director, whether it's your own fair or someone else's fair, you start paying attention a lot more to the experience of the fair. You know, what is it like to be there? What is the architecture? Is it navigable? Do the maps work? And also to the way in which the fair is integrated or not integrated into the cultural life of the city. You start to think of the fair as being part of a broader event within the city. And you, you look at how well that city supports or doesn't support it. You look at how well the fair exploits or doesn't exploit the broader environment in which it takes place. And you start thinking about, is this a fun thing? Like, would I spend my own money to come to this fair? Because as a journalist, normally you're paid to go to the show, right? But the question is, you know, would I spend my own money to come to this? You know, I remember when I went to ArtHK, which was the predecessor or a Basel Hong Kong, there was basically no social programming. Like everybody went to the pond, which is a bar that I love in Hong Kong, but still like everybody went to the pond, you know? And I remember opening up the program and saying, wow, like this is more like a classic old school trade show fair. You know, it's all in the convention center. And I think, you know, the modern fair that I inherited is one in which you think about the fair as something that takes place throughout the city, throughout the week, throughout the day. And so when you're an art fair director, you look at how well that's achieved. So I think that this is a nice lead in to Miami Beach and Art Basel Miami Beach and what the perception of it was when it was first announced in 2001 versus what it has become in the succeeding 20 plus years. You did an interview in December of 2022 with Melanie Gerlis of the Financial Times. Shout out, Melanie, friend of the podcast. And you told her in that interview, I'm going to quote you, that when you first heard about Art Basel Miami Beach, you thought it was, quote, a crazy idea. I had never been there apart from via Grand Theft Auto Vice City. Now... Art Basel Miami Beach is a staple on not only the art industry calendar, but the pop culture calendar. Like you can talk to people who say that they're going to Art Basel and they have no idea that Art Basel is a trade fair in the art world. They think it's like a collection of parties and concerts and activations by brands and all these other kinds of things. So you could address this in a lot of different ways, but I'm just curious to know what was it that you didn't see about Miami and about Art Basel, Miami Beach, and its potential circa 2001, 2002, that ended up giving it the power to kind of do that thing that it has done in the years since. There are a few things I failed to take into account, some of them because I simply didn't know. One of those was the enormous engagement of the collectors in that region. Norman Brayman, of course, a strong political influence and civic influence there, but also the Rubels, the Dela Cruzes, of course, Marty Margulies, Craig Robbins, not only as a collector, but also as a developer who brought us Design Miami and then later the entire design district. I didn't understand how much this meant to them and how much of an effort they would make. One anecdote that Sam Keller told me about after the first fair was that the Dela Cruzes came to him and said, Sam, tell us some galleries that are important to you who didn't do well so that we can go and look for work that we might want to buy. And in the same way, they and the Rubels opened up their homes 
and had hundreds, if not thousands of people traipsing through them, looking at their collections. And I think the art world, and particularly the European art world, can be a little bit pretentious. And I think there's this kind of classical gaze. If you know your art history or you know your art market history, you know this notion of standing in front of a painting and solemnly looking at it is actually the way that the bourgeoisie would distinguish itself both from the dissolute nobles and from the uneducated peasants. But this idea that, that you're not supposed to get excited about art, which is ridiculous, also leads us to think that art couldn't somehow be important in a place where you could also have fun in the morning and at night. And so I think the party reputation of Miami kind of clashed with this notion of the art world as a place that doesn't like to party, which is absurd because some of the best parties I've ever had have been with artists. I think I didn't know at the time, I didn't understand the degree to which that region, and specifically Miami and Miami Beach, are the de facto capital of Latin America's socioeconomic elite. Almost everybody who has a lot of money and is cultured and educated in Latin America has some combination of real estate, businesses, bank accounts, kids in school in that area. And to be honest, there weren't enough of them collecting at the time to have a real impact, but there was this ripple effect over the years in which more and more people from Latin America came to Miami that week, because they were coming anyway, but they came to Miami that week and starting to collect. And, you know, one person would bring five friends and three of them start to collect. And then the three of them would each bring five friends the next year. And suddenly you'd have nine people collecting and so on and so forth. And that had a real impact. The biggest thing in most recent times, of course, was the way in which the pandemic and Miami's great income tax laws, well, great if you're a billionaire, not so great if you're someone who needs taxes to be paid to support schools and, and policing, but led to the fintech industry and also finance and tech people separately moving to Miami. And so there's been this last wave of collectors who came in in the last couple of years, you know, and the sum total of all those things is that what started as a place which was really driven by private collectors is now a place where you have the existing private collectors, a new batch of private collectors from all over the United States, where you have not only private museums that were built by those private collectors to house their collections, but also you have public museums like the Perez Art Museum Miami, like the Bass, like the Wolfsonian that are hitting on all cylinders in the way that they were not 15 years ago. And you even have, and this is kind of amazing, the city of Miami Beach, the local citizens taxing themselves to the tune of $159 million just before we got there, actually, in order to donate to culture. And so you suddenly have a much more balanced cultural ecosystem there. But it didn't exist at the time, and it wasn't a thing that was going to happen for sure. And I have to say, if you give Art Balls of Miami Beach all the credit for that, it's not really doing justice to the people who were on the ground there every week of the year. On the other hand, I'm not sure that what happened in Miami Beach would have happened without us being there. Yeah, that makes sense. It's a classic, not an either or, but some of both kind of answer to how things developed. I'm just curious because regardless of how it happened, it did happen. And now I feel like there is almost this expectation or at least this hope that when an art fair comes to a new city that it can have this unifying amplifying effect on the entire cultural scene and local economy in the way that art basel miami beach has at least contributed 
in a substantial way to Miami. When did that understanding start to gain traction? So I don't think it's overblown to say that cities see this as something that's possible and that they want. But I also would underscore that it's not a thing that happens by itself and that it certainly doesn't happen every time an art fair comes to town. I think it's a very different thing for an institution like Art Basel, which whether it's going to Buenos Aires in 2018 or Paris in 2021, has dozens of VIP reps talking to collectors all over the world and museum directors has hundreds of galleries with a longstanding relationship with them and thousands of collectors who've had good experiences at their past events. So yeah, if you have an institution in the art world with the firepower of an art Basel coming to town, it can do that. But it also can't do that an innumerable number of times. And I think I certainly spent a lot of time in my first title at Art Basel, which only lasted about six months, which was director of strategy and development, fielding a weekly call from a more or less random city that wanted me to bring Art Basel Miami Beach to their city. You know, and I think that hope is natural, but I think the price of doing it and the conditions for doing it are not always there. One other place that it seems the conditions certainly were there was Hong Kong, which you mentioned earlier. Art HK was bought by MCH Group, Art Basel's parent company, and transformed into what is now known as Art Basel Hong Kong. And the first one of those fairs was in 2013. My question for you is this. The geopolitical and sociocultural and economic landscape in 2013, especially in the Asia-Pacific region, was just very different than it is now. I think that back then, and correct me if I'm wrong, please, but I think that the expectation was that we talk about this thing called the global art market a lot, and that that depends to some extent on this shared system of values and beliefs about how the world should work. And that sense of shared values, I think, worldwide has taken some hits, let's say, in the past 10 years. I'm not going to ask you to answer this necessarily about Hong Kong and China itself, but it seems to me like art went into this landscape with one set of expectations 10 years ago, and it's now dealing with a different set of expectations and a different set of circumstances. And it's a harder channel to navigate than it used to be. Do you have any lessons that you learned from your time over in that region of like how to, as an art seller, as an artist, as a cultural representative, manage to do what you do and maintain some integrity without getting caught in forces larger than yourself? I mean, I would also point out that in the United States, the notion of shared values, even within the art world, is far from clear. I think the majority of artists and gallerists may have a very different politics than at least a large percentage of the collectors. The art world is never in a pure bubble. Economic issues 
affect them. Political issues affect them. And good artists respond to the politics and cultural movements of the day. On the other hand, I think there's an extent to which the art world is almost like a global nation state. And to some extent, it has its own diplomacy and its own ethos. And I think that often in the places where the politics are the toughest are where it's the most important to have an art scene and where, in essence, art and culture are kind of a a lifeline or a sense of connection to other parts of the world. In a more general sense, I think it's always important when you go in as an outsider, as we did in Hong Kong, to engage. You know, when we went to Hong Kong, we were seen as this invading force, which was ironic because we had bought the show from three English guys, and the show was run by another English guy. Everyone assumed we were going to copy-paste the Basel show into Hong Kong, and, and we said otherwise. But in the end, as I learned in Hong Kong, and as I later learned in Paris last year, you can talk till you're blue in the face, and some people are just not going to believe you until they see what you're doing and what you're not doing. And I think the way in which, when you're in a different kind of environment than where you've been operating before, you make your mark and sustain your ethos is to find kindred spirits and to work with them. And then, of course, as things, you know, move around, as things change, sometimes, you know, to your displeasure or sometimes complicating your life, I think you have to keep your eyes on the prize. I mean, as much as we would like to think that progress is linear, it tends not to be. I think you have to roll with the punches and figure out what's the best you can do when the situations change. So speaking of situations changing, one theme I would say of the past 15 to 20 years in the art industry specifically has been to be non-diplomatic, kind of the power relationship between fairs and the galleries that exhibit in fairs. I mean, I'm not saying that Art Basel did this because it didn't. But when I was still a gallery professional, I remember applying to fairs and essentially being told by the fair, this is what you should bring if you want to have any chance of getting into this fair. And I've heard other dealers complain about that kind of thing in the years since. And I guess my question is this, fairs and galleries should have a symbiotic relationship, and I think that they mostly do, but it also seems to be a very complicated relationship. And I'm just wondering how you have seen that relationship change, broadly speaking, over the course of the time that you've been on the other side of the art fair profession. I think I'm going to answer that question in two different ways. As the market got bigger, and as the expectations of galleries and of their artists got more global, the fair's became a more and more important part of the gallery's economies. But those economies grew. And so on the one hand, I think galleries were happy the fairs existed because it allowed them to grow. On the other hand, I think it's always tricky when you feel dependent upon anybody, in this case on art fairs, and in particular when, as the situation is now, you have two organizations running the best 10 fairs in the world or so. 
it's a really tricky situation. And it gets especially tricky in cases like the one you mentioned before, where people feel like they're being told how to do their business and what to bring. But let me give you the perspective from the other side of the table, from the head of the table in the selections of the Art Basel fairs, which I did 40 times over the course of 15 years. When you run an art fair, and maybe even more so when you're on the committee of an art fair, and you know that you will be judged on the quality of that show, you start to see it as something like a symphony filled with instruments. The Art Basel Fair has roughly 300 instruments. And if a lot of them are playing out of tune, the whole thing kind of falls apart. Because buying art is not a rational act per se. Um, And certainly, whether or not people buy art at a particular event has a lot to do with atmospherics. So if you have a great stand next to two other great stands, it looks even better. If you have a great stand next to two bad stands, it kind of takes the wind out of the whole everything, right? And when you keep that in mind, and you're looking at which galleries to admit, in many cases, galleries have a long history of doing solid booths, and the Committee simply let them in. But in some cases, the committee is faced with a choice. One is to say to the gallery, please bring this, because in the estimation of the committee, that's going to be the best booth they can do. And the other is to not let them in. So what people don't hear, because fair directors are too diplomatic to say it to them, is... We're not telling you what to bring because we're trying to control you. We're telling you what to bring to give you the chance of being here and accessing the market that this fair generates. That is the real deal. Like when a fair director and a fair committee gets specific, it's not some sort of nanny state authoritarianism. It is their desire to have that gallery in the fair without hurting the fair's reputation or quality. And at the same time, it's that committee's desire to give that gallerist a chance to be part of the show. The easier option would be simply not to take them. But instead, and I've seen committees do this over and over, they will literally say, okay, what doesn't work for us? What if they did this? What if they did that? Or maybe it'll simply be like, listen, you can do everything except that. Trust me, as the person who's had to deliver that news many times, I wouldn't want to be on the other side of the table either. I get it. But it's actually doing people a favor. I think this is one of the things that makes art fairs just fascinating from a sociological standpoint, from a business standpoint, because... What you're talking about is curation to a certain extent. Like you're saying that the fair directors and selection committees to a certain extent are trying to curate the overall presentation of the fair to make it the best that it can be. What art fairs do when they ask galleries to bring specific pieces or to not bring specific pieces or artists 
is the same thing that galleries do when they decline to sell to certain collectors. It's about building a certain kind of vibe, a certain atmosphere around their artists, around their galleries. It's basically saying, we judge you by the company that you keep. And they don't like to hear it any more than collectors like to be told that their collection isn't good enough yet to be sold to. Right. And galleries are also doing that same thing to the artists that they choose to represent or not represent or give shows to or not give shows to. Yeah. Like you can show with us, but you're not getting the show in September. Like it's the same thing as like you're in the fair, but you're not in the front row. Like these are limited resources. They have to be adjudicated somehow. And ideally people see it as being done fairly. But of course, it's a highly personal business. I mean, this is the thing about the art business. The art business is an industry in which every single product bears the name of the person who made it is being sold in many cases by someone whose name is above the door or the stand in which it's being sold. And it's being sold to someone who is almost certainly spending their own money. That is why it is such an emotional business. Let me shift gears a little bit and talk about something beyond fairs specifically. One of the things that happened while you were director of Art Basel was that Art Basel started to put out the art market, not the concept of the art market, but the annual data report called the art market that is led by arts economist Claire McAndrew, and ends up being pretty much the main signpost that gets used at least in the media as the indicator of how large the art market has gotten every year. I want to talk about the importance and kind of the tensions within the use of data in the art business today, because I'm somebody who works with data a lot, as you know, And I hear from two sides, primarily, in the art world today. I hear from people who say, yes, we need more good data. We need to professionalize these things. We need to be able to really trust the information that we're getting. And so this is a major, major thing that everybody in the business needs to focus on. I also hear from people who say, there's too much reliance on numbers. The numbers that we're getting aren't the right ones. And there are causing people to focus on the wrong things. For instance, Alan Schwartzman, mega advisor, wrote an op-ed for Artnet News at the end of last year talking about how the prevalence of data has led collectors to basically buy predictable things because these are the things that are tracked the best and they can assign the best or the most reliable source of, of value to. What's your take on the art world's relationship to data at this point? Like, do you have a unified theory about whether we need more, whether we need less, whether we need different kinds, anything like that? Like, where's your hat at on this right now? So the thing to remember about the art market is that it's really small. And so statistical analysis 
is almost pointless because the data sets are not big enough to provide any sort of reliable numbers. I mean, the standard deviation for the number sets that we have are too high for them to be any of any value. So I think the data that really gets talked about a lot is sales data. And there, I would argue that we have the wrong numbers and more specifically, the wrong types of numbers. Because the numbers that we see, because they're the only public numbers for sales, are auction numbers. And anything that comes to auction, by definition, has a market which is either hot or perceived to be heating up. Therefore, you get a lot of very well-established artists. You get artists around whom there's a lot of speculation. And you get a greater degree of volatility than you would see in the gallery market. And so one of the things that I hear about a lot from people in the gallery world is that on the one hand, they feel like the numbers around their artists coming to auction are too high um, because people focus on the outliers, but also too low sometimes in the sense that a market for an artist may seem to crash because it buys in a couple of times. But actually, in the gallery, it's humming along at a more normal price to people who have a longer history of collecting it. And so I think the problem is that you have a completely lopsided set of numbers and people lean on them because they want numbers without thinking about how deceptive they might be. And therefore, I think Alan's argument is right, that if you focus on these kinds of numbers, the art world you're dealing with is much more limited intellectually and aesthetically than it would be if you're looking more broadly. And it's much more financialized. I think in the same way, and here I'm going out on a kind of Tim Schneider loop. Can't wait for this. (laughs) If you were going to compare privately held companies and publicly held companies your picture of the market would be very different, right? And of course, publicly held companies fluctuate all the time. And part of why they fluctuate is because they have to respond to shareholders all the time. Privately held companies tend to run in more sustainable ways because they can play longer term. If you think about it that way, the auction houses are the publicly traded companies of the art world. And the galleries are the privately traded companies of the world. And they are related and they intermingle and they share clients but the ways in which their markets develop are different. And the statistics or the absence of statistics both reflect and reinforce that. How do you like that for a unified theory of data? I think it's great. I would absolutely write a column that was like that, except you just did it live on the mic and now I can't. So. (laughs) <laughs> you and freestyled. I freestyled it. One take Spiegler over here. <laughs> Another big picture theme that I think you dealt with during your time at Art Basel and certainly going to continue on in the art world at large is this idea of technology and the embrace of technology and what the art world is doing with technology and what it should be doing and what it shouldn't be doing. I guess 
the most basic way for me to ask this is, do you think that the average member of the art world, meaning the average art seller, the average artist, hell, even the average museum professional, do you think that there has been a meaningful shift in terms of people's useful embrace of technology. Like we hear all the time that the art world is so far behind the curve when it comes to tech. And if you're comparing to other industries, is that still the case? Or have you seen enough from your various standpoints in the art market to be able to say, actually, that is changing. I've seen enough examples of interesting things being done out there and seeing those things succeed that I feel like that narrative about the art world being super behind the times is actually now outdated. I think the art world is super behind the times, but I don't think it's for lack of imagination. I think it's because of the specificity of this market. And when I talk about the art world here, I'm talking about the types of galleries and artists that I was dealing with at Art Basel for 15 years. You know, we're leaving aside the NFT space, we're leaving aside the people who are making healthy livings, selling stuff off of Instagram DMs. But the art world, as we think about it, as Artnet writes about it most days, is comprised of unique objects being sold by people who are trying to curate the careers of their artists by whom they sell to, being sold to people who are investing large amounts of money, even by their very high standard. And I think it's just a very hard market to commodify and build algorithms around in comparison to other markets. Unless you're talking about the, really the top, top, top end of the car and watch market, for example, these are still commodities. And maybe it's a lack of vision or just being old or whatever, but I just think there's something wired into the market, which makes it much harder to digitalize. And I'm not saying that the data that shows that the millennial collector, the Gen Z collector is going to be more likely to operate more digitally is wrong. I think it's right. But I still think there's a magic that happens when a gallerist who really knows the work and can talk about it is in front of that work with the collector. That's very hard to replicate. And people have done it. We did like a hologram sales pitches during the Hong Kong fairs that were locked out because of the pandemic. We launched a very successful program that to this day exists at the shows called the Show Experience Assistance, where a single collector walks around the fair from a distance with someone who's on the ground with a camera and a headset asking galleries about the work and showing them specific pieces in the show at their request. And that's great because it solves a problem, which is that there will always be great collectors who aren't coming to the shows, but it's not the same as standing in front of the work. And I just think it's a hard industry to digitize. And it will, like every industry, become more and more digital. Communications will become more and more digital. And of course, galleries that learned how to promote their work using social media and using private online viewing rooms will not forget about those things. But the reality is that most people like to buy and sell art in person and that the business that's done digitally is usually 
a knock-on effect of in-person interactions. It's a very different thing to interact with an artwork or a person digitally than it is in person. I just read an article by Nima Reza, New York Times writer, and the co-host of this podcast called On with Kara Swisher that I listened to. And she wrote about dating during the pandemic. And the problem with dating during the pandemic is people would interact a lot and you could judge someone's humor and stuff. But until you kissed them, you had no idea of whether you wanted to go out with them. It's almost like that with the art world. Like until you stood in front of the work and felt it, it's hard to know if you really want to go deep on this artwork, on this artist, right? And so I think a lot can be achieved digitally, but there's this kind of moment of truth that happens when you're in the room. And I'm not a superstitious person. I don't believe in magic. But I do believe that there's something beyond just what we see on a screen. I agree with you. And I think that to me, that was one of the big lessons from the pandemic. Like, I will never forget when the initial shutdowns happened in March of 2020 in New York and all the conversation that started about how, okay, well, this is bad, but there is a silver lining here, which is that the art world had gotten too out of control. There were too many events. There were too many things that we needed to try to show face at from time to time. And now this will be a situation where we are forced to think about other better ways to do things. And that will in large part end up being more intelligent digital engagement of one kind or another. The second side of that is that what happened as soon as it was reasonably safe to go out and see people again. Basically, all of those events came roaring back. Galleries started actually expanding to more physical locations. We had more fairs. And I mean, even from my own personal standpoint, I definitely went through a phase where I was like, yeah, maybe there is a better way to do this than like hopping on a plane at all these different times to go actually see these events in person. And the moment I had the opportunity to go to an art fair, again, I was like, yes, please, inject that directly into my veins. The opportunity to go around a convention center and talk to a bunch of people in a very concentrated amount of time and like slam a power bar in between booths where nobody will see me so that I can just keep going. I just think that that's the way that it works. People love to hate on art fairs, but the reality is this. They can be a lot of fun. And while the pandemic taught people that they can do a lot of business without having to commute and do those terrible day trips where you like get up at six in the morning and have a meeting at 12 in some foreign city and then have to fly back and just be lucky and hope you don't miss that last flight. Like that's not necessary. And I think people are doing less of that. But if anything, the pandemic proved to people what a social business it is and how much they missed it. I think as much people had good intentions not to travel, the reality is that as soon as you see your rivals, beating you out because they traveled and you didn't, you start getting on planes. Now, I will say this. I think there's been a lot of work by people like the Gallery Climate Coalition, which Art Basel joined a few years ago, to try to figure out better ways of doing this. And, you know, I remember talking to Sadie Coles about how her team systematically flies economy, even for long trips, because that has less environmental impact, which makes sense. It's more people in a space. So, 
I think people got more mindful about it, but the reality is it's very hard to do this business without traveling. Yeah, it is ultimately a social business. And I think that the social side of the art business is in a lot of ways the most underrated and the most misunderstood aspect of it to somebody who is trying to come at what it is that we're part of from an outside perspective. Again, to my point before, this is not a rational business. The pricing is driven entirely by perception, mm -hmm. right? An artist who produces a lot, you're paying for their skill. An artist who produces a little, you're paying for the scarcity. The reality is that what you're paying for is where that artist is positioned within that market at that very particular moment. And that has to do with a lot of conversations that are part of social networks that exist because of social networks that are promulgated through social networks. You take out the social aspect of the art world and it doesn't exist. Yeah, and this is why I just believe there's only a certain extent to which you can ever commodify art. The whole presentation of art as an investable asset class in the same kind of ways as stocks and bonds or ETFs or whatever drives me up the wall because it just makes this assumption that every artwork by a given artist is basically worth the same thing, just the way that like one share of Apple is worth the same as another share of Apple. And obviously that could not be further from the truth. And part of the reason that it ends up being the case is that there is a kind of social understanding of the superiority of one work to another, whether that's based on color or subject matter or the condition of the work or whatever else. And like, these are all things that happen in conversation. Or a manufactured trend yeah. that's also happened in conversations. I mean, it, you can build a hype if you have enough influence. People would go to the Rebels collection to see what they had, and then they would run to the convention center looking for more of that. And that's fine, you know, because they have a long history of choosing great artists. But the point is, social capital is really important in this business. Absolutely. Obviously, one of the hot topics in the art market, and really in any business at this point, is the threat of recession and all these negative economic indicators that you're seeing. You've been through multiple cycles of the art market. I know that you've written about this idea of the stability of the art market and how it's more complicated in a lot of cases than it's understood to be from the outside. Based on what you've been seeing in the sort of global economy, because I know that you're paying attention to this kind of stuff, what do you think the art market is in store for in the year ahead? So I'm not an economics expert. And it's always a huge mistake to forecast based on past experience. But I'll tell you what my past experience is with the art market. The art market is enormously resilient for a couple of reasons. One is that it's driven financially by a group of people who are particularly well protected from recessions. A lot of billionaires got wealthier during the pandemic. This is a point that Scott Galloway, the great podcaster and business analyst has often talked about. For the super wealthy, the pandemic was the best years of their life because they made a lot of money and got to spend more time with their family. And 
they could research art and buy more of it. But even the people at that level who lose a lot of money are still super wealthy. And the stuff that they're investing in otherwise doesn't seem like such a good investment because there's too much volatility. So sometimes they buy art just because it makes them feel good and it doesn't cost that much, which doesn't mean that we're facing an easy time for galleries. And of course, galleries will close as they do during every difficult time. But what I've always been amazed by, and it really hit me in the early 2000s when we had the first new economy crash and there was a kind of recession there, is the small number of galleries that close. In comparison, I think, with other industries, very few galleries close. Look at the number of galleries that closed compared to restaurants during the pandemic. Look at the galleries that close versus tech companies that close. And the reason is this, I think. Most people who run galleries do it out of a real sense of passion. They have the social connections, perhaps the financial capital, certainly the access to capital, the drive, the willingness to sacrifice for their business, that would have allowed them to make a lot more money and certainly live better lives by a lot of objective measures in industries such as real estate or marketing or hospitality. But they chose to run art galleries. And what that means is that when their business is at risk, they pull out all the stops to keep it going. They sell the artworks they were keeping back as a kind of pension. They fold down their staffs. They start packing their own art up at fairs. You know, you know the business is good when there's nothing but art handlers in the halls after a show. Because it means even the little galleries feel like they can afford to have someone else pack their art and send it home. You can strip down a gallery business pretty fast because the staff is not enormous. You can choose to fund less shows, less biennials, less catalogs. And you can strip it down to its core, which is basically keeping the door open and doing shows. And that's what people will do during difficult times. And in a way, and I don't want to minimize the sacrifices that people make to do it, but most of the people to whom it really matters will figure out a way to make it through whatever comes at us. I think that's a great point. And I would add on to it by saying that as somebody who spent the better part of a decade working in a gallery that was not like a mega gallery. The reality of running a gallery is that just the day-to-day -day business is a crisis. Like <laughs> nothing in it is super stable, even in really good times. So you get really good at figuring out ways to just respond to whatever happens to be broken at this particular point in time. So yeah, when a big crisis hits, I think that in a lot of cases, you're probably better prepared for it than somebody who's running a business in a more stable industry. I mean, it's a good point. When the market is really strong, you're faced with doing too many fairs and people trying to poach your artists. So you're also at risk. Yeah. When you look back on your time as global director of Art Basel, what do you think you're going to be remembered for most? It's a hard thing to be asked to write your own eulogy. So I'm going to divert a little bit. I think it depends on whom you ask. I think for the galleries that I first discovered, 
maybe it's some distant fair and who I encourage to apply to Art Basel and who then became major international galleries. I know because they've told me this, that I was someone who really helped them to build their gallery. That's been one of the most rewarding parts is really meeting a gallery at the periphery of the art world that was doing a great job and didn't realize that they were just as good as the people sitting in Chelsea and in the Marais and in the East End and that they should be there on the platform and encouraging them to do that. So I like to think that I'll be thought of as somebody who encouraged a lot of younger galleries and encouraged the art world to grow and to become more global in the good sense of the word. You know, certainly the committees of Art Basel became more diverse. We went and engaged with Asia and Latin America in a way that we hadn't before. I think the way in which we engaged with the art world became much broader. One of the projects that people sometimes forget about is that we did a multi-year project with Kickstarter where we raised more than two and a half million dollars for 65 different nonprofits all over the world. And I think that's a very different notion of what the Art Basel brand is and what it can do. The three biggest things that I think anybody would acknowledge would be going to Hong Kong, which played an enormous role in not just connecting East and West, which we knew it would, but also connecting different parts of Asia to each other. I mean, people forget how enormous Asia is and also how diverse it is. You know, Asia, by my count, has at least half a dozen really distinct regions that, for all effects and purposes, weren't really talking to each other so much 15 years ago. And now they are. And I think Art Basel Hong Kong played a big role in that. I think going to Paris, although it's a new venture, I think is a big thing because of where Paris is going and where how far Paris has come and the way in which Paris so perfectly balances the public sector with now very strong public museums, but also the private sector, if you look at what's happened in Paris, being able to jump into the dynamic that also included the Fondation Cartier, the Fondation Vuitton, La Fête Anticipation, the Bourse de Commerce from Pinot, and then Angéry Grec from Frédéric Jousset, all these private players who are just making enormous contributions to that scene, and then to be able to jump in and be part of that dynamic, I think it's going to have a big impact both for Art Basel and for Paris. And then I think the pandemic was really the crucible for us in a lot of ways. You know, everything shut down, and yet we figured out ways like doing these two or 3,000 person Zooms with different people from the art world that I was hosting every one or two weeks for a while to sort of keep people connected. You know, we put in place the online viewing rooms in the course of a month to keep people selling. Then when people came back, we demonstrated that you could do a fair safely by working very closely with the government of Switzerland, the government of Basel, by doing the solidarity fund as a way to kind of create an insurance policy for galleries that were still scared about what might happen. And I look back on that period as something that was very, very difficult. Also, to go from seeing your team all the time to not seeing them at all. And yet somehow we made it through and then we came out strong and we did Paris. And those are three big points. I would say personally that all the conversations that I started and that I was part of with people from all over the art world and the impact that those conversations will have 
for many years is a really hard thing to judge, but it's been one of the most exciting parts of my tenure and kind of reflective of how the art world works. It's the theme we were talking about before. The art world is intensely social, and I was able to stage and be part of a lot of great conversations, which will have real ramifications on the cultural future. Shifting from the past to the future, you're a free agent. I know you well enough to know that you're not going to tip your hand about what you're doing next, if you even have any sense of that. So what I'll ask instead is this, what are the challenges in the art business today that you find yourself to be most drawn to or most interested in? I think what's really interesting today is what's happening outside of our traditional notions of the art world's geography and structures. I'm really fascinated by the way that culture is developing in places that didn't have it before, which brings a whole new set of challenges. I'm really fascinated by the way in which the art world is becoming less white, less Western, less navel-gazing. I'm really fascinated by the way in which the visual art world intersects with domains such as architecture, design, cinema, music, fashion. And I'm really curious to see what's going to happen as our notions of how art is made and shown and sold and secured develops. And I hope to be part of a lot of the conversations around that shift. Well, I'm willing to bet that you've already had plenty of people blowing up your phone to try to make that hope a reality and that plenty more are getting in line as we speak. Mark, thanks so much for coming on The Art Angle. Tim, thanks so much. Always good to talk. It's a long time since the Sunset Towers. That's it for this week's episode. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Also, take a moment to rate and review us. It will help other listeners discover what we're doing. The Art Angle is produced by Sonia Manalili, Caroline Goldstein, and me, Tim Schneider. Thanks for listening, and see you next week. 